Let's open our Bibles up here to the third letter of John, the third epistle of John. Right before the letter of Jude and then right before the Revelation, toward the end of your Bibles there, the third letter of John. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word as we look to His inspired, infallible Scripture. 3 John, verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever work you do for the brothers and are doing this though they are strangers. And they bore witness to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, which he does, unjustly disparaging us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, with this he himself does not welcome the brothers either. And he forbids those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good witness from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our witness, and you know that our witness is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am unwilling to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Let's pray. Our Father and God, your word is more precious than fine gold and sweeter than the purest honey. As we turn to your scripture, send your Holy Spirit to infuse your word with truth and grace so that the good news of your love would shine before our eyes and delight our senses so that we cannot help but respond with wonder faith, and trust. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I, as I mentioned last week, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, gives us three letters. He gives us a gospel account and an apocalyptic revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ all of which demonstrates his multifaceted ministry during the last days of the Old Covenant era. John writes to the broader church, he writes to regional churches, and he writes to individuals, which we have here, of course. Now, his concern in these three letters is pastoral. As one of the elders in the church, indeed a disciple of Jesus and an apostle, he was the youngest of the, of the group, John cares about truth. He cares about love. He cares about the commandments of God's law, and he cares about the mission of the church and the furtherance of the gospel. It was a tremendously difficult time during this, culturally speaking, uh, spreading the news, the good news of the Lordship of Christ 
in a hostile, pluralistic world had its challenges as it does today. When you start saying that Jesus is Lord and, and, and by implication Caesar is not, some people get bothered by that, and that's on them. False teachers and heretical groups constantly popped up in the early church. Many of them had to be dealt with swiftly. And John, whose time was occupied with Gnostic suppositions, the early seeds of Gnosticism was, was happening during this time, John needed to offer up correctives for the flourishing of the church in the wider world. Now, the church is always at risk of taking her eyes off of the priority of Christ and his word. We are always at risk of that. Not a day goes by when we're not at risk of taking our eyes off Christ, taking our eyes off his word, and then starting to do things we shouldn't do. And consequently, the church is always at risk of compromise. It's very easy to compromise truth, especially the truth of God's word, when we insist on our own version of it or insist on our own way. And that's the challenge of being a Christian. Sin is no respecter of persons. And this is why John spends so much time in these three letters speaking about truth and love and obedience and ethical conduct. He says it over and over and over again about what it means to actually love someone, what it means to defend the truth, what it means to be obedient to God and his law and what he has taught us in his word. Now, walking in the truth is a manner of speaking. It's a way of summing up what it looks like to be a Christian. Walking, this, this metaphor of walking, is, is we see it in the Old Testament, and, and especially in Psalm chapter 1, but walking is a Hebraic way of describing one's conduct and living. How you live your life is how you are walking. Are you walking with Christ, or are you stumbling uh, into sin? So that's why he uses the metaphor here. Walking is, how, is our behavior. It's how we live. Christianity isn't simply believing that which is propositionally true. When we think of Christianity, we, we, we shouldn't think of it as primarily just, well, we believe propositional truths. We believe that there are, there are truths that are there. Now, obviously, we want to do that, but it's more than that. It's believing and doing as well. It's believing and doing that which is consistent with the truth. So, uh, as James reminds, reminds us, we're supposed to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. So we believe what is true because God has revealed himself, absolutely. But if we don't act on that, we've not done our duty. We've not been responsible with the truth that we've been given. So we believe and we act. We believe and we walk. And if your Christian life isn't marked by walking with Christ with tangible ways, and that looks like uh, building a home. It looks like educating your children in the Christian worldview. It looks like evangelism. It looks like apologetics. It looks like an inner and outer balance of the Christian life. Building Christ's kingdom, building uh, him building his church, and us going into the world and speaking this truth of God's self-revelation. It looks like all of those things. So we must believe and we must do. And our job is to live in line with the mind of God. That is your job. Children, Listen, you're, you're responsible for living in light of the mind of God. You must live in line with what he says, not what the world says. Now, we are brought forth into truth at the new birth. When you are born again, you are brought forth by that truth. That truth does something to you. And so you're brought into it, by it, and for it. And so we exist within that truth for the remainder of our lives. 
Um, many people have shipwrecked their faith because they, they made a profession, maybe they grew up in church, and they said all the right things, they did all the right things, and then they chose to grow up and live like the world. They, they choose to walk a different path. And, and that is sad, it's maddening, because a lot of the time the church is responsible to some degree or another. But we, we're supposed to exist within that truth for the remainder of our lives. You are all supposed to go to your deathbed with Christ on your lips. You are supposed to go all the way to your grave walking with Christ, being with him. Therefore, because of that, we must walk in accordance with the truth. And remember, the truth is Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's look at our text here. The third epistle of John is written to Gaius and includes comments about a problem named Diatrophes with a commendation of Demetrius. So it's a very personal letter. Uh, Diatrophes had no idea. The rest of the world for the rest of history was going to be talking about him and not in a positive way. But it's a very personal letter and it gives us a glimpse at the early life of the church. Um, just like the second epistle of John, the third epistle has a chiastic structure as well. Um, remember, a chiasm is, it starts with a concept A and then it talks about B, then C, and then D comes and then it kind of walks it back out, and it, it's kind of a mirror, a reflection, and that was a normal way of writing letters, and certainly the Bible itself is structured in such a way. But it begins and ends with a greeting. Yes, so you have a greeting on the front end and the back end, the tail end here. Moves on to the beloved who have a good witness, and then the beloved who are doing good, and then in the middle there's this problem, <laughs> diatrophies. Now the main occasion for both of these letters surrounds the issue of hospitality. And that's what both 2nd and 3rd John deal with, is the issue of hospitality. Welcoming strangers, when you look at the actual original meaning of hospitality, it's a reference to welcoming strangers. That's the literal translation of the Greek word. Um, when you welcome strangers into homes and into churches, um, that's a good thing. And how all of that works with traveling and itinerant preachers and missionaries, this is the first century world. This is just what you did. We must practice the truth, we must protect the truth, we must welcome the truth, especially when it involves our brothers and sisters in Christ. So 2 John, the letter we talked about last week, that instructs the churches to withhold hospitality from false teachers. Don't welcome them into your homes. Do not aid and abet their mission to teach false doctrine. But then 3 John comes in and instructs the churches to embrace the true and faithful preachers. So the letter can be divided up based on the names, and so we're going to start here in verse 1 with Gaius. John begins by once again referring himself as the elder. He's an elder in the church, just like Peter, just like Paul, the other apostles, and the other elders that they put in place, like Timothy and Titus and so on. He writes to the beloved Gaius. Indeed, beloved is one of John's favorite words. We don't know a ton about Gaius, and perhaps he was a pastor, an elder, uh, a deacon, perhaps a missionary in that sense. He was from Corinth. Paul mentions, mentions him in, in, in Corinthians. And that was a difficult place for ministry because everything had gone crazy in, in Corinth. Um, either way, though, uh, John commends Gaius for his consistent behavior. He was an exemplary man in the church. John loves him in truth. And in verse 2, John prays for prosperity and health. He prays for safe travel for him, and he prays for a successful journey, and he prays for physical health. 
So it's not wrong to ask God for physical health. Um, asceticism, this is the idea that you just, you know, forbid your body with, from doing certain things and you withhold what God has given you and you, you don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, that sort of thing Paul condemns in Colossians 2. But asceticism was condemned in the previous letter, and here John vouches for the value of the human body, that God has given us bodies for a specific reason, to honor him. And God made, made the body. He loves the body. He, it's his design. It's intricately woven together. God desires for us to use our bodies for his glory. And so both physical and spiritual health are beneficial. And indeed, it's appropriate to pray for that. John does. So we can learn from him. In verse 3, John rejoices in your truth. And before your postmodern subjectivism is triggered, and we'll explain that because that's people say that today. I'm living my truth. John rejoices in your truth, speaking to Gaius, meaning that the truth that they possess as a result of walking in the truth. So we practice and maintain truth, the truth, when we walk in the truth. And when you walk in the truth, the truth becomes ours to steward and not to invent. So when, when the Christians say, well, our truth, we're actually talking about the truth. And so John makes it clear what he's speaking of. Now, believing truth leads to behaving in truth. Credenda, things believed, and agenda, things to be done. Both of those go together. Creedal Christianity is always a functional Christianity. All right, that's the tension I mentioned earlier. To be sure, according to verse 4, there is no greater joy for John than hearing that his spiritual children are walking in the truth. I would say that goes for biological families, too. Children, there's no greater joy for your parents to see you walking in the truth, to see you abiding by Christ's teaching, to see you fervent in prayer, to see you singing, to see you uh, participate in, in what the church is doing. There is really no greater joy. But the same thing, not just in our families, but also in our, in our churches, in our missionaries. In our, I, I, I love when I have the opportunity to go to Africa and see some of the friendships I developed over the years and see them walking in truth and you know, pastorally, that's just a joy. It's wonderful to see that. And John points that out here as well. So it's a, great, it's a great joy for pastors and elders to shepherd God's people and to see them walk in the truth. The contrary is also an issue. It's a great burden for pastors and elders to try to shepherd God's people only to see them walk in falsity. So we must walk in truth. In verse 5 and 6, John rejoices in one specific aspect of their walking in truth, the acting faithfully part of welcoming strangers. The preachers came, the itinerant missionaries, those who were spreading the gospel came. They stayed in their homes. They experienced the host's love for the church, and then they sent them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Now, this is the beauty of Christian fellowship. It's the beauty of the worldwide visible church when you have an opportunity to fellowship and, 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 and participate in a mission, that's one of the great joys of abolition conferences and, and being able to participate together with brothers and sisters, some of you who you know, some of you you don't know, but you're committed to Christ and His kingdom and, and you labor together and it's a real, it's a real joy. And so we should, we should treat other Christians that way. We should welcome the strangers. We should um, send them in a manner worthy of God. So during, and I'll say this, like historically, during this time in history, you didn't have safe places to go like the Hampton Inn down the street. 
You didn't just check into the Holiday Inn, the Hilton, Marriott. They didn't exist, as you very well know. The sexual deviance of culture had essentially taken over the local inns. It was, uh, they were essentially brothels. They were places of iniquity. And so traveling Christians, um, they relied on the hospitality of other Christians. It was sort of a normative thing. You really didn't go to those places unless you planned to sin like crazy. Um, but if you're on a mission, you had to rely on people. You had to rely on fellow Christians to welcome you into, into your home, into their home. Now, in the second epistle, we are not to welcome false teachers. He says to not welcome false teachers. And then the third epistle, Gaius and the team are commended for welcoming those who preach and teach truth. So we have to have some discernment here. You don't just welcome anyone and everyone, who even those who may name the Christ, name of Christ. You have to be discerning. And we also know that in Matthew 10, receiving our brothers and sisters is receiving Christ. And we need to remember that. When we receive our brothers and sisters, we are receiving Christ himself. To welcome them was to welcome Christ. Also, we assume some level of financial responsibility towards other Christians, even feeding them or clothing them should they need it. So if you welcome them into your home, you, there was a financial aspect to this as well. Your job was to aid them in their mission. One writer said it this way, they practice not truth at the expense of love, nor love at the expense of truth, but truth and love together. Now in verses 7 through 8, John highlights the nature of the Christian mission. Some went out uh, for the sake of the name. That is, some go out on mission for the name of Christ. That's verse 7. Others, in verse 8, support such men, doing it as fellow workers with the truth. And this is one example among many in the Bible where some do go. Not everybody is called to pack up your families and, and go to Africa or go to Asia. Um, not everybody is called. And some send. And that's the beauty of working together in the body of Christ. Some preach, others fund the work. All right? Some, some, uh, some preach, some others fund, some go, some send. All of us go in some sense, but not everybody goes in the same sense. But together, John says, we work and we labor using our gifts for the advancement of the kingdom. Next up, the problem, Diotrephes. Diotrephes was a problem. First, he had a pride problem in that he loved to be first among them. Woe to the man who just can't get enough of being the most noticed and, and experienced the most notoriety, just clams for any opportunity to be first among, among others. He was concerned not with welcoming what John and the other elders were saying, but with his personal agenda. Diotrephes was a man of arrogance, a man with an agenda. Uh, he wanted the attention. He wanted that notoriety. He wanted the fame. And you can have great gifts and ambition and desire, but you can completely ruin a church with your pride. Ambition alone isn't enough. It's not enough to just say, well, I'm ambitious. It must be godly ambition. It must be ambition for the sake of others. So he was prideful, but second, he was uncooperative. Apparently, according to John here, he wouldn't work with others. He didn't play nice with others. Thirdly, he was a gossip. He unjustly disparaged them with wicked words, John says. Not a, not a, a great man with encouragement on his lips, but disparaging others. John, apparently, John's authority meant nothing to him, and rather than cooperate for the sake of the gospel. He just spoke ill of others. 
I imagine if they had Twitter back then, there would have been quite a, a storm. He does not welcome the brothers, verse 10. He forbids them hospitality. He sends them out of the church. This is a man who has his own ego problem. Fourthly, because of this, he was controlling. He shut out the true teachers and he welcomed the false teachers. He wasn't mature and thus he couldn't discern between good and evil. And that is a biblical sign of spirituality and maturity, being able to discern good and evil. He wasn't self-aware enough to see how his controlling personality affected others. He caused a lot of problems. And these types of people are very, very dangerous in our churches. Rather than being hospitable for the truth, Diotrephes was inhospitable. Indeed, he went against John. Imagine going against John, the apostle of Jesus. <laughs> Not that he was anything in and of himself. He, too, was who he was because of the grace of God. But he went against John and the others. Some people, apparently, you can tell the truth to over and over again, and they'll just never listen. Actually, Diotrephes, his name means Zeus reared or raised by Zeus, child of Zeus. <laughs> He must have loved the name, or I, I would have changed it. He was probably, because, by the way, because of that name, many scholars surmise that he was part of the wealthy upper class, and therefore he threw his weight around. He probably had a big checkbook, big bank account. Had, he was well thought of by many people. I mean, you can be well thought of by many people, but if they're the wrong types of people, it's not really a you know, positive thing. But he was a false convert. His name said it all. And a side note here, <clears throat> when the apostles appointed elders, they didn't choose those of the upper class, the wealthy, the affluent. They didn't go around and saying, hey, uh, who has the most money in the bank account? All right, you are the elder. You're the guy. Now, they chose men of character. They chose men of calling, of compatibility, of competency. They, they looked at all of these things, and, and, and they appointed them. Um, some, have, some may have social standing. Um, others didn't necessarily have that, but that wasn't the deciding factor. What mattered was character and your calling and your gifts, your competency, all of that. Now, one writer, however, says it this way, and I think it's a good reminder. He says this, There will always be those who think they are smarter than the church elders or wiser or more shrewd and have more common sense. So they spew out venom towards the church elders, criticizing them, ridiculing them, indulging cynicism, respecting them, all in the name of concern for the well-being of the church. Certain personality types are vulnerable to this disease. Everywhere they go, they attack those in authority, end quote. Um, they're slanderers. They are driven by rivalry. They are driven by their own ambition. And these are dangerous, dangerous people. Furthermore, if they can't be happy, no one can be happy. They are narcissistic busybodies on social media instead of busybodies at home and at work. They are constantly throwing themselves into confusion with others, constantly causing dissension, busy with the wrong thing. Instead of walking in the truth, serving others, focusing on the mission, these people attack their leaders and they cause division in the church. And you can see churches split like that all of the time because of personalities that are driven like that. So instead of being preoccupied with using their gifts, serving the body, they create this hostility. And this is why Hebrews 13, 17 warns this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. 
Hell hath no fury like a church member who just wants to be a pain for everyone else, especially the elders. These people are to be marked, they're to be avoided, they're to be rebuked, they're to be censured, and if they do not repent, they are to be thrown out and excommunicated. Now, Demetrius, verse 11. Gaius, great guy. Diotrephes, bad guy. Demetrius, good guy. There's your letter. That's the... <laughs> As a response to this troublesome man, John urges us in verse 11 to imitate not what is evil, but what is good. Because of the old man want, that wants the old ways, we must be on guard and we must repent for imitating that which is evil. Apart from grace, we will always go back to our vomit. We will. Apart from grace, we will always go back to our own vomit. Imitation is required here, but the correct imitation is what's important. Don't love the things of the world, the things that marked diatrophies. Instead, imitate what is good, John says. Imitate Christ. Imitate our older brother. He's who you should look like. He's the image restorer in you, so look like him. Additionally, John says that those who do good are of God and those who do evil have not seen God. That's a striking indictment indeed. An example of this is Demetrius in verse 12. He has received a good witness from everyone, from the truth itself. John testifies and Gaius and company knows that their witness comports with truth. Demetrius doesn't do evil. He does good. And he possesses the maturity necessary to tell the difference. Plus, he's been a good witness. People have seen him in action. People watch him, how he serves the body, how he's encouraging others, how he's looking first and foremost not to himself but to his neighbor. So he is a good witness. He cares for the truth. He conforms to the truth in every way, and he's a man of conviction. I love what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, tolerance is the virtue of the man with no convictions. Boy, that hurts. Tolerance is the virtue of the man with no convictions. Demetrius was a man of conviction, which means he did not tolerate the falsity of diatrophies and others. And lastly, who's the fourth one? John himself. Verse 13. John closes on another personal note. He has more to write in verse 13, but he'd rather speak face to face. Verse 12. Um, Oh, that's actually verse 14. As mentioned last week, he said as much in the second epistle. Some things just require a face-to-face -face meeting, and when you have the maturity to tell the difference, you're able to promote unity and camaraderie rather than division and discord. He closes in verse 13, uh, excuse me, verse 15, peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. We look over those words and we just sort of gloss and, oh, that's, that's neat, peace. But he means it. He means the peace of Christ given us by the Spirit. Using their names. Greet the friends by name. Using names in a greeting is a good practice as it helps us remember the humanity of it all. Rather than losing your identity in a sea of faces, rather than the state just giving you a number, you have a name. And a name establishes identity. John 10.3 reminds us that Jesus calls his name, calls his sheep by name. He calls us by name. So how shall we then live? The whole letter goes like this. Are you ready? I'll sum it up for you. Hi, Gaius. Thanks for walking in the truth. 
Thanks for welcoming the missionaries and showing them love. Diotrephes is a wicked, prideful man who is not showing hospitality the way that he should. Demetrius, on the other hand, is top-notch and everyone knows it. I have to go tell everyone I said hi. <laughs> now, there's a lot to learn from this letter, right? We must live spiritual lives, which means we live truthful lives, not with vain hypocrisy or narcissistic control, but instead lives marked by love, marked by self-sacrifice and service towards one another. Moreover, when walking truthfully, we must serve faithfully and minister to one another with a generous heart. What do we learn from the letter? letter? Don't be prideful, looking to receive the glory of men, the praise of men. Don't be arrogant or presumptuous. Don't slander your brothers and sisters. Don't try to dominate other people either. Instead, be an example. Godly fathers and godly mothers, godly husbands and godly wives, godly children and godly homes. Faithful members in biblical churches, be an example worth imitating. Have a good reputation with outsiders and insiders. Be reliable and exceptionally full of integrity. Long for face-to-face fellowship. Commend one another in peace. Greet one another by name. We can learn all of that just from this letter. There's so much here to take away. The face-to-face fellowship in our, in our technological age, we have... We're not in a good place culturally. We're not. We have depersonalized one another to a mere Facebook picture, um, text messages. We get access to everyone. We were reflecting on it this week how you know, there was a time when a man who would, he would go to town and find work, and the guy hired him said, hop on this train. You're going you know, 10 hours away. We're going to corral some wild horses or something, you know, build something, and you'll be gone for a month and no one is talking. You might write letters, but we are, we are so far from that. It's amazing to think about. Like longing for face-to-face? No, nah, I got a keyboard, that's fine. And we seclude ourselves and we hide ourselves. And I think that John points that out, that there's just something rich about face-to-face communication, looking each other in the eye and communicating even the hardest things rather than trying to just throw a text message at somebody and hide in our, our own little cocoon of safety. I think there's a lot we could take here. But I want to focus on imitation, proper imitation. Christianity at its core is a mission of imitation. It's a mission of imitation, provided that we care deeply about the truth and walking in the truth, of course. Our task is to live within the newly established confines of the gospel. You've been brought into the good news, so live in the good news. That's your job. That's what God has called you to do. What is God's will for your life? Many people stress over that question. It's very, very easy, actually. Yeah, I know, right? Easier said than done. What is God's will for your life? Imitate Christ. Well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What do you like? Let's go for there. You know, let's talk about that. We are, our, the will of God for our lives is to imitate Jesus Christ, to think like Christ, to behave like Christ, to feel like Christ how he felt to, to walk like Christ, to act like Jesus Christ. Christianity is proper imitation, imitation and replication of Jesus' ways. What did Jesus do? Well, go try that. You don't have to go out and start trying to walk on water, but you get what I'm, we're talking about his ethical behavior. As a kid, I used to try to walk on water. I really prayed earnestly for that <laughs> to happen. Never happened. 
We're supposed to imitate Jesus, to be like him, and to do it with conviction. Imitation without a conviction of truth is phony. It is fickle. And if we're not careful, we can become pharisaical. If you want to try to imitate Christ on the outside without your heart being in it, you are a hypocrite. And we are all prone to that. That's not good imitation. That's bad imitation. Imitation without conviction is, is showmanship. It's theatrics. It's external. It's look how, look how I dress. Look how I act. Look how I, I do on the outside while your heart and the inside is crumbling for various reasons. A man who will trouble himself all day long to look right in the eyes of men will be looked at in judgment by the eyes of God. Because God sees the heart. And it's not like, oh, the Old Testament, he just cared about the law on the outside, and then the New Testament, Jesus fixed it, and now he cares about the heart. Nah, nonsense. He cared about the heart all the way through. Joel says to rend your hearts, not your garments. Tear your hearts in repentance, not just your garments. He is after the heart. So here's what I'm getting at. Christianity, if it is to be Christianity, first grips the heart and then motivates the will. That's the order. It first grips the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit and then motivates the will. That's what makes the truth of Christ so powerful in the world. Everyone imitates someone. Everyone is imitating someone. And it's either good or evil. If you're a humanist, you're going to imitate Darwin or Nietzsche or Sartre or Freud or some other hero of humanism and existentialism. If you're a true Christian, you're going to unfeignedly imitate Christ. Now, like Diotrephes, there are many false converts in the church. Um, it's, they're ubiquitous. It's ha it happens in any tradition. You can have people in your church who on the outside, great, they're Christians. On the inside, they are as pagan as the pagan. And they're quite comfortable imitating evil, hearing the gospel, allegedly following the gospel, but in their actions following the devil. There are even pastors and elders who in their incompetence lead people astray. It happens. And Christianity today has become largely astray. And instead of the imitation of Christ, many, many Christians seek to imitate the world, to act like the world, to think like the world. Instead of pure worship and heartfelt obedience in all areas of life, instead of confession of sin and the preaching of the Word of God, the purity of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and what those things really mean for the church, instead of the larger mission of cultural engagement and even cultural renewal, Instead of those things, the church would rather exist for momentary emotional injections. If I can leave Sunday feeling really great about myself, that's the goal. Here at Cross and Crown, we want you to feel miserable about yourself. <laughs> but we want you to feel even better, though, about Christ and his grace and his mercy and his love for you. We don't do worm theology where you're just a worm. You may act like a worm as a sinner, but in Christ you have been made a saint. But people want that. They want a quick drive-by spiritual high. So many have this incessant need to be liked by the world, and as a result, Christianity has been watered down big time. Christianity has become very easy. It's very easy. It's very easy to ignore the abortion holocaust. It's very easy to ignore the problem of statism. It's very easy to ignore your own heart. It's simple. What do you got to do? Ah, just show up to church once in a while. Feel good about yourself. That's it. 
But Christianity, we know, isn't supposed to be easy. Christ said to take up your cross, not your pillow. He said to deny yourself, not take, make yourself the priority. Christianity has become easy because people have made a God in their own image and likeness. Hence why injustice runs rampant in the streets. See, imitating Christ, that's the core of what John is getting at here, requires us to be anchored in the truth. And that's why the law and the gospel go together. The law brings the charges. You are guilty. The law brings the charges. But the gospel brings the true verdict. Not guilty. The law then comes in afterwards and gives us the wisdom and instruction necessary for fearing and loving and imitating Christ, for loving our neighbor, for pouring ourselves out, to truly committing to every area of life to be under the authority of Jesus Christ. I want to end with this, just this brief two-week look at walking in truth here in these letters. I want to end, look at verse 12. Demetrius has received a good witness from who? Everyone. And from what? The truth itself. Don't miss that phrase there. From the truth itself. Truth itself is enough to live on and die for. Don't miss that. The truth itself, and I'm talking truth incarnate, Jesus Christ. He is enough to live on and he is enough to die for. The approval of truth in your life is worthy of leaving everything behind. We can be approved by anything and everyone, but if it's not the approval of the truth of Christ, it means nothing. And we always seek that approval, don't we? We seek approval from other people. We, we, We are people pleasers. We're prone to those types of things. And we want the approval of the world. We want the world to think we're just nice and neatly packaged Christians with great, a great label on it. And we lose the approval of the truth, and thus we are condemned. So the approval of truth in your life, it's worthy of everything. It's worthy of leaving everything behind. You want to serve two masters, it can't be done. You cannot serve Christ in the self. You cannot serve Christ and Caesar. You cannot serve Christ in sin. You cannot serve Jesus and a narcissistic self who is broken but putting on a front. The approval of truth, what you actually get in the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough for you, Christian. It's enough. If the truth speaks well of you, then who cares what anyone else says? If Christ can approve of you in his gospel and by his grace, and you're humble enough to just simply accept that, and you don't care about the approval of others, you're at a good spot. It's enough. If the truth speaks well of you, who cares what anyone else says? If the truth speaks well of you, then who cares about what the culture around us is preaching and teaching? If truth commends you, recommends you, validates you, and in Christ, thanks to his death and resurrection, that is what we have, then nothing else matters. You don't need the approval of men when you have the approval of Christ. Diatrophes fell into that pit. Gaius, Demetrius, John himself did not. You don't need to amalgamate Christ with self-made Christianity, nor do you need to tailor it to your fancies. Instead, you must not. You are either approved by the truth as it is, as it sits, Christ crucified and raised. 
You're either approved in that or, or, or not. You don't have the permission to change it, adjust it, or tinker with it. The truth isn't a Lego project where you get to just make it your own thing. It's not. It is what it is. It's fixed, immovable, permanent. It is Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.18 is apt here. A great verse for you to have underlined if you do that in your Bible. 2 Corinthians 10.18. For it is not the one who commends himself that is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. The only approval you need, dear Christian, is the approval of our Lord Jesus. That, that approval given to you in the gospel is what motivates us for gospel ministry. It's what motivates us for proper imitation. The imitation of Jesus Christ for the sake of the nations. For the sake of our homes our churches, and the culture. The truth matters, friends, so walk in it. Immerse yourself in it. Be so familiar with the truth that falsity can be spotted from a mile away. Be so familiar with the truth that your very life is marked by a consistent obedience of faith expressed in self-giving love. That is John's message. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you that your, your providential care is with us each and every day. When we look to your word and we read these types of things, it's very easy for us to develop a worm theology. It's very easy for us to just know that we don't measure up and then leave it there. But instead, we ask that you would help us to embrace Christ every day. To take up that cross daily, to immerse ourselves in the truth of your word, to be so familiarized with your Spirit's fruit in us that we have the approval. We know we have the approval in Christ. Help us to believe it. Father, help us by your Spirit to become that which we've been made to be in Christ. You've called us to holiness. You've called us to imitation. We ask that you would give us that strength to do so. Help us to not fear the world, to not fear the culture, but to look around and see your sovereign hand guiding it all. So we trust you today, and we ask that you meet us at the table. In Christ's name, amen.